So happy Valentine's Day, or not. <laughs> so um, as we go into this today, I'm breaking my normal pattern. In that, I am going to preach Valentine's Day sermon here. Never done that before. After this is over, you'll probably hope I never do it again. But um, so let me say from the outset that I recognize how difficult Valentine's Day is for a lot of people. Um, and we want, especially I want, but as a church, we want to be sensitive to that reality that everybody doesn't approach this as a great day. It's difficult and painful for a lot of folks. So just recognize that as we go through this, if, that, if you happen to be one of those folks, recognize that I don't really intend to preach just a, uh, a gushy kind of ridiculous thing. There's something in this for all of us, let's say. And just to set the tone for that, let me underscore just how Valentine's Day works out for us. I did some digging this week on some of the retail statistics for Valentine's Day 2015, so a year ago. 18.9 million dollars were spent on gifts. In the overall scheme of things, one statistic says that it was as high as, I think I said million, I should have said billion with a B, okay? $18.9 billion spent on Valentine's Day last year. Now, if that's hard for you to believe, you haven't gone shopping this last week or so. Of that money, uh, over $52 million spent on flowers. This is just in the United States now. $50 million uh, on jewelry. I I'm intrigued with some of these statistics. Some 198 million roses are produced for Valentine's Day as a rule. Of the Valentine's Day cards that were purchased, 85% were purchased by women. According to these statistics, I'm guessing, okay, this is not in the statistics list, but I'm guessing that 85% of the men who did not give cards last year will remember to give them this year. Just guessing. Um, some of these are, are troubling statistics for me. Well, I'm, I'm very troubled by the amount of money spent, just to be honest with you. Our values as a people are something else. Um, here's the one that gets me the most. Well, before I give you the one that gets me the most, here's just to let you know uh, that I'm willing to get trouble into your lunchtime plans with your spouse. $116.21 was the average spent per consumer last year on Valentine's Day. So... Ladies, get those sharp elbows going if you didn't get $116 worth of satisfaction Valentine's Day. Here's the one that bothers me the most. 
I'll just read this. Percentage of women who would end their relationship if they did not get something for Valentine's Day. You want to guess what that percentage was? 53%. Now that surely, surely that can't be right. Uh, whatever else is true, whether these statistics, I mean, I'm not a statistical guy, but it came from a reputable uh, set of sources, at least it, from my vantage point. It, um, whatever else you want to say, Valentine's Day is intensely commercial. Uh, and it causes me to wonder why we spend so much money and why we strategize on how to get the perfect Valentine's gift. I, I was cracking up this morning listening to our children's minister uh, who's over in children's church right now uh, with all of his peers. And um, <laughs> if he was here, I'd say the same thing, so it's all good. And, um, but he was talking about the fact that 10 years ago, he proposed to his wife on Valentine's Day and his, his dad said, so what are you going to do to top that from now on? Um, but isn't that, to pull him out of that mix and just take that, that idea, isn't that how we sometimes approach it? Like, okay, so I did this last year, so this year. I, I have the perfect opportunity. Uh, Teresa was reminding me and some of our friends this last night. Uh, her birthday is tomorrow. And so I thought years ago, um, when I didn't think I would live this long, that uh, that the perfect Valentine's Day gift for her was a combination Valentine's and birthday gift. You don't even know what the gift is yet. How come you? How can you boo that? So, so I bought her a pair of shoes, and I gave her one on Valentine's Day. Tell me that's not awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I had hair before that. Uh, it leads me to question, who started this mess? We spend so much money and, you know, the, the expectation level of Valentine's is so uh, intense for some of us. It just makes me wonder who started this. And I'm going to kind of come back to that and answer that in a moment. But I want us to get down to brass tacks here for, for the rest of the time. Uh, I am afraid that we, as Christian people especially, have gotten very lazy when it comes to Valentine's Day. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say that as is usually the case when we adopt bumper sticker theology and folk religion for the way we do our faith living it out, if you don't know what those two terms are referring to, it's, it's that mindless religion that we throw out instead of thinking through the implications of what we say we believe. So bumper sticker theology and folk religion lead us to an unreflected kind of faith. And what tends to happen when we adopt that approach is that we dumb down really great theological truths that should drive our lives, but we dumb them down to things that we can handle. And so I'm afraid, uh, I'm, I'm really not anti-Valentine's Day, regardless of what it's going to sound like here. 
but I'm afraid that we have let Valentine's Day be the personification of this bumper sticker theology that hides behind the banner of love by reducing it to romanticism. And so we do things on Valentine's Day uh, that we never would consider doing during the course of the year. We say that we love somebody on Valentine's Day by giving them a card. Uh, By the way, guys, if you're going to give cards, read it before you give it. Uh, Or chocolate. Or any of those gifts that we give that seem to speak volumes on the day, but then they mean nothing for the rest of the year. Um, So, again, I'm not saying that we should abandon doing Valentine's Day gifts. But I am saying that you could very easily be guilty of making a mockery of love on Valentine's Day. So we should understand and come down on what love looks like and, uh, and then operate accordingly. So I want to start that process with the legend uh, or one of the three legends behind the guy that this day is named after. Uh, Valentine, before he was Saint Valentine, was just a priest. And this, I, in the early service, I inverted a couple of the numbers or, or switched a couple of the numbers and said it was fifth century. But it's actually in 269 thereabouts uh, in the Roman uh, kind of that push of the Roman Empire. And this guy Valentine was just a priest. And according to this one of three prominent legends that are behind it, and this one seems to carry the most weight, at least for me, Valentine was a priest in this little village. And so as he was going about his deal, the, the, the condition of the Roman Empire under Emperor Claudius was such that they were fighting wars and he continually needed soldiers for his war. Uh, but he found, at least in his estimation, that when the, these young guys would get married, they were useless in war. Uh, that's kind of a biblical thing. Go back and look at the Old Testament and you'll find that when uh, guys got married, they wouldn't let them serve in the military for two years because their minds just go to jelly. I mean, guys just check out for the first couple of years after marriage. And uh, so that was Claudius's belief. And so he banned marriage in the Roman Empire because he needed those guys to come and fight. And they weren't good fighters once they got married. So he just said, just don't do it at all. Well, you can imagine with all of the uh, loose morality of the day in the Roman Empire that that didn't stop those young guys from, uh, well, you you understand. Okay, so, um, and so... It, the, the problem was compounded. You can't get married, but now there's multiple women in this guy's life. And, and so that went cut straight across the values of Christianity, where we believe that marriage is a divine institution. And so this priest named Valentine began to subvert Claudius's edict, and he began to conduct weddings on the sly. Well, in doing that, he was finally found out. 
And there was a guy who was put in charge of, of his case, a judge named Asterius. And Asterius had a daughter who was blind, and so Valentine was imprisoned and sentenced to execution because he was going against the Roman Empire and doing marriages because of the biblical perspective on marriage. And while he's in prison, Valentine began to pray for Asterius' blind daughter. One of the things, those of you who have been Catholic or maybe still are Catholic and you're with us today, welcome by the way, we're so glad you're here, but um, in order to become a saint, among other things, there has to be some kind of manifestation, divine miracle kind of thing that occurs there. And so one of the things that goes into St. Valentine's being raised to a level of saint was that he prayed for this guy's daughter and she received her sight. And in the process of that, this Roman judge, Asterius, also became a follower of Christ. Which didn't go all that well in the estimation of the emperor. And so, he was, Valentine's that is, was sentenced to die a threefold sentence. He was to be beaten first and then stoned and then decapitated. That doesn't sound all that romantic to me. And yet we have taken the idea behind a guy and if the legend is true there and we have elevated him and given him his own day to talk about love. And by the way, we get that from your Valentine, from the letter that he sent to Asterius and his now healed daughter just before he went to execution and he is alleged to have written across there from your Valentine as he went to his death. So every time you sign a card from your Valentine, you just think about how far we've come away from the original picture of love. We, we need to figure out what love looks like. And so as we come to this, we find that the New Testament has much to say about what love looks like. And we're in Colossians today. Obviously, we're moving away from our series in James, and we'll come back and start back into that next week. But before we do that, I wanted to stop on this day and bring a little perspective, a little bit of centering for us on what this whole idea of love looks like. And so in Colossians chapter 3, we, we find this layout that the Apostle Paul is given as he is teaching these people in Colossae what it looks like uh, to walk with Christ and to be a functioning Christian. Not name only, but living it out on a daily basis. And in this, and I'm going to read this passage as we go through it, but uh, in this, Paul, he, he drops into one of those things we find consistent in his teaching, and that is there is this section that is about vices and the things of your former life that you need to put away. And he turns from that and he says, okay, but as you put those things away, uh, then these are the things that you put on, literally to make your own and to place them upon who you are as a person and then live it out. 
And that's his virtues list. And he does that several times in his writings in the New Testament. Verses 1 through 3 of Colossians chapter 3, we find Paul saying this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life appears, and you will also appear with him in glory. Here's the vice list. Now put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them. So he's talking about those outward things, but now he transfers into those inward things, verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath. And so in case you got off on the first set, uh, lots of luck getting off on this one. Put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We jump to verse 12, where he now puts the, the virtue list in front of us. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. In today's text, verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Since we find this basic teaching in Paul, and we've already seen it in our series lately in the book of 1 John, and we certainly have seen this basic teaching in the book of James. Maybe it's safe to say that love living is very much a big deal for Christians. Nobody modeled what love looks like better than Jesus did. So what I want to do today in the time that I have left is I want us to look at a couple of things that I'm going to pull two things, if I have time, two things off of Paul's list here. Uh, but I want us to see that in Jesus and I want us to apply it for us. And this is now the application part of what I said earlier. I'm going to talk some about you in your relationships, whether you're married or wishing that you could find somebody to marry you or, you know, whatever the case may be in those romantic kind of relationships. I'm going to talk about applying them in those things. But I want to also step beyond that and talk about all of us and how we live everyday life and what love looks like for us. So, those characteristics that we find beginning in verse 12 are amplified when we get to verse 14. It's not so much that Paul says that they're not important anymore, but he's taken the trouble to lay them out for us, and then he comes to verse 14, and he says, but above all, even more so than those things, put on love. So let's look at first one of those out of verse 12. Let's just take the first one. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. There is, um, I guess I would say, one of the most compelling 
figures in modern church history for me is that little nun from Calcutta named Mother Teresa. If you have not studied her life, I suggest that you do that. Now, clearly, uh, we were gonna, are going to have some doctrinal differences from where she was. But there are some things about the way she lived her life that Christians in America today really need to get. As you go through her life, you will find that she pushed aside all of the niceties of life because she had such intense compassion for those poorest of the poor, the rejects in India. Some of the stories that come from that life, well-documented historical things that she did and said in her life and that whole order that she set up or at least carries her name and her vision for caring for poor and unfortunate people is very instructive for us in our world today. One of the things that she said, and I'll paraphrase it and put it in road tramelees for us, is she made the comment that those people who were rejected by society with all of the needs that they had, that need that rose to the surface more than others was that somebody would love them. It's easy for us to sit back and look at an Indian society so many miles away and say, yeah, somebody needed to help those people. But the reality is every one of us walks and drives past people in our world today who desperately need someone to love them, to have compassion for them. This is that word that keeps bubbling up in the Christian life and Jesus first and foremost, but now we find Paul pulling it in. It's that word that speaks about a gut-level reaction that is triggered by seeing somebody in their need. But it's more than just seeing them in their need. It's that gut-level reaction that compels us to get involved with them. And there again, so many times we, we settle into a way of getting involved and helping people who need help, but we do it largely from a selfish motivation. I feel good when I do that for people. But this Christian, thoroughly divine word and concept that is behind compassionate hearts here is that one that says, even though it cost me, I have to do this for them. Even though I don't get the feel goods by doing this, I have to help them because I see them in their need. The best picture, I mean, there are multitudes of pictures that we could use uh, out of the life of Jesus to draw this out a little bit more. Let me, I'm not going to go there so you don't have to turn, but over in Mark chapter 5, you can look it up later. We find the account of Jesus as he's going through this portion of his life and his ministry where people just can't get enough of him and they're pressing in on him and he's making his way across the countryside up around the Sea of Galilee and, and there's just people everywhere. And he's teaching and he's doing miracles and they just want more and they want more. And into that mix, he's confronted with a situation where this synagogue ruler named Jairus has a daughter who is dying. 
and in fact will die before it's all said and done. And they come to Jesus and say, hey, would you please come help? With all of the press and all of the push around Jesus, he drops what he's doing and he goes to help. Put yourself in the place of that dad. Knowing that beyond hope, your daughter is just not going to make it. Can you imagine what the picture would be of Jesus if he just said, I'm busy, can't do that. And so Jesus goes. But this compassionate heart bleeds even further into and out of Jesus' example now. When we find him on his way to go help that situation, and this needy woman interrupts him. She's without hope too. No doctor has been able to help her. And so in the most humble possible way, she refuses to be rejected. She sneaks up behind him and just reaches out and grabs the edge of his clothing. Jesus stops. Now, by this time, Jesus is on an emergency run. It would be the equivalent of driving an ambulance trying to get to somebody who's near death. Jesus is in the midst of that, and he stops what he's doing, and he makes time for that woman, and he heals her. This compassionate heart that Paul is talking about in verse 12 is a thoroughly divine thing. We push it into our day-to-day existence. And so let me talk for a moment to those of you who are married or engaged or dating or think you might somehow someday get a date. Here's an unfortunate truth out of our experience. It is said familiarity breeds contempt. Let me road tramalize that for you and say it this way. Familiarity breeds laziness. And we can get so settled into the way we live out our relationship with our spouse or that person in our life that is really important to us. And we fall into these patterns. And all of us do that. We have certain ways that we get up in the morning and certain things that we do and uh, some of us take an ivy of coffee every morning. Um, but we, we, we fall into these patterns. And, and that's okay. It's not, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's really dangerous. Because those patterns are meant to help us not have to think about everything and not have to wonder, okay, so what do we do next? And that kind of, and, and, but what happens and the reason it's dangerous is because we settle into those patterns and before we know it, we have, let's see, let me how I, let's hear how I hear this in counseling situations. Well, you know, we just grew apart. No, you didn't. You chose to separate. 
But most people don't know. We're separating now. We're on our way to the divorce court, but we thought we would stop in and check in just to see if God might have something to say about this, And which, by the way, is not a bad thing to do. Before you go, let's see what we can do to help God get in on it for you. But the reality is that sometimes we make decisions early on to separate, and it takes years for that to bear fruit. But we settle into those patterns, and we begin to do life separately. We share a house, but we don't share life together. And then it takes tragedy sometimes to shake us out of that pattern. Compassion moves to see the need of the other person. See, patterns work against that. We, we don't work to see the need. We work to isolate ourselves or the other person. And so what happens then is we get too busy or we become too familiar with our situation and our compassionate heart for that mate of ours somehow becomes a little bit hard. Let me put it right in your lap. What are the struggles that your significant other are going through right now. If I could set both of you side by side and say to one of you, what are the pains that your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend are having right now? Could you answer that? So many times we get so hurt by that other person that we start walling off those areas of our lives where pain exists. We start going it alone. And there's no way we could have compassion on people outside of our family because we don't have compassion for people inside our families sometimes. So what are their struggles? What are their needs today? What are you doing to shoulder the load for them? You see, this is the stuff that candy and cards and romance can't touch. Those become empty gestures on one day a year when we spend the rest of our year acting as if that person's not important. And we fall into the marketing trap of thinking that we've done our, do- our job. But all of us now, not just that kind of relationship, but all of us. Here's a good truth for us to hang on to. We typically treat people the way we see people. Do you see people as tools to help you get what you're looking for in life? Or do you look beyond who they are into their struggles? You know, the place that I think is the best way for us to answer this question is in the retail market. Chances are good that you have a circle of people uh, in your extended circle who are there just because they work at a place you need service from. Now, I get this largely when I talk to my son who works in a pharmacy. Now, let me make sure you get this picture well. A pharmacy, theoretically at least, is set up to help 
hurting people get the medication they need to have a better life. Now, am I getting that right? Right? Doesn't that make Okay. So I, I listened to my son talk, and we've got some pharmacists in our church, and uh, I, I'm interested in watching their facial expressions when I start going to these kind of places because here's what Brandon tells us. People come into that pharmacy, and they're mad. They're mad from the time they get out of their car and come in there. You know, here's, here is a news flash for you. Pharmaceutical in, industry is extremely regulated by the federal government. Right, Barbara? Right. And where he is, they can't just say, oh, you need morphine? Here, have some morphine. They have to jump through hoops left and right. Insurance companies. Okay. Insurance companies, does that trigger a little bit of an angst in some of us? Because we deal with all of that and there's all of, and so people come in and they start dealing with that retail person who is there to help them and they start ripping them up. Why? Because they're tools for those people. Because we love to be in control and to drive the argument on everything that we do. One of the, I'm acutely aware of this segment of our population now like I've never been before because of Teresa's job. You know that we have a segment of our population that is largely ignored, and that, are, that is that group of children who are in foster care. They're not there because they chose to be there. And some of the people of our day can do horrendous things to children. But you know, it's so easy for us to just get in our cars and drive past those parts of town where hurting people seem to really hang out. And it's easy for us when we as church or churches uh, set our vision on things where it's convenient for us to go minister there. And so we decide that hurt trumps the other hurt. And you've got to make decisions. I, I get that. But in your everyday life, those people that populate your circles have hurts and pain. Do they see in you a compassionate heart or just a Christian person? As if that's a political label. Assault and light kind of people habitually step in to the sea of need in our society because they're compelled to by Jesus Christ. Let's get another one very quickly. Verse 12 also says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, and then he says, humility. You know, this, is, this one is hard for us because our society amplifies competition. We're number one. Alabama won the national football championship for colleges. I know for us LSU fans and us Baylor fans, we can't imagine how that could ever happen. But Alabama won. Last week, Denver 
won the Super Bowl. Next month, Baylor will win the NCAA basketball championship. I'm not sure Baylor has a basketball team. Uh, everybody here knows the long-standing winning tradition of the Coons Lions boys basketball program. Everybody here should know of the upcoming long-standing tradition of a winning basketball program for the girls at Lumberton High School. We all get the competition thing. We love to say we're number one. But when we say we're number one, by definition, we're saying to everybody else, you're not. And humility cuts against that. This is not confined <laughs> to sports teams. This week, okay, now, if this was you that I'm about to talk about, just, I love you, okay? You cracked me up this week if it was you, okay? But so many of my sermon illustrations that I don't even use grow out of Highway 69 South where it goes from two lanes to one. You know what I'm talking about? Just... Teresa and I are in the final stages of buying a house south of that because I just can't keep using those illustrations of that place. I'm going to use this one. I won't use another one for a long time. This past week, I was thinking about this sermon. I was driving. I was thinking about it, and I was in the correct lane. I was in the correct lane, okay, which means the one that I was in. It's got to be the correct one, right? Okay, so let me tell you how that goes because some of you lived here all your life and you don't know the correct lane there, all right? And that is, when it comes down to two lanes, the right lane has to merge into the left, okay? It's set up that way. Um, but they need to have like a NASCAR guy there with the green flag, right? <laughs> because what happens is people pull up, people who have lived here all of their lives, it's not like it sneaks up on them and goes, oh, we got to get down to one lane here. It, it is a competition. And so I was minding my own business, thinking about a sermon, and driving down through there, and we get down, and I mean almost to where it's to one lane, right? It's decision time if you're in the right lane, okay? And some dear saint, <laughs> see, I'm remembering what I preached last week, so I'm trying to be real careful here, uh, this this dear saint comes screaming up. I mean, he's passing four or five people behind me, and he's got to get in. And so we're out of two lanes now into one, and I, I kid you not, I'm 20 feet behind the, the guy in front of me, and Captain Fantastic is going to get in there. Oh, no, he's not. Now, if that was you, I looked over at you and I smiled because I was thinking, not today, buddy. <laughs> what you didn't see, if that was you, was I got 100 yards down the road and the Lord started going, was that really very Christian of you to do that? <laughs> Humility. We just can't help ourselves with this me first stuff. It's in our DNA. We call that a sin nature, actually, theologically. It is that control part of us that says, I'm going to, 
I'm going to be in charge. I'll be God, which means you will get out of my way if I'm driving and I'm in the right lane, not you. We just can't help ourselves. But humility says, I will voluntarily step back. This is tough stuff for us. But it is very Jesus kind of stuff. Matthew chapter 9. I'm not going to go there now because I'm out of time. Matter of fact, our musicians, y'all come on up. Um, But in Matthew chapter 9, we have this instance where Jesus and his disciples are walking from point A to point B. And they get, you know that, you know that look you get from your kids when you walk into a room and you know they've been doing something they're not supposed to be doing and you surprise them when you walk in? That look of, that's the look the disciples must have had because Jesus gets where they're going and he says to his disciples, what were you guys talking about on the way? And it says there, Mark chapter uh, what is it, 9 verse 33 thereabouts, it says that they stopped that they did not answer him because on the way they had been talking about which one of them was the greatest. Isn't that so Christian? To be in the presence of Jesus himself and we're going to fight over which one of us is the best. You know, I don't use this word very often, certainly not from the pulpit because I know we have young ears. But it applies here. That's just stupid to do that. To be in the presence of Jesus himself and us to think that we got it going on is just not smart. In a relationship, in your romantic relationship, here's a news flash for you. You don't have to have the last word every time. Here's another one for you. In America, we don't have kings and we don't have kings that includes your house the reality is that Jesus Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 we find this charge to all of us now consider others as more important than yourself I think all of that and I put it back to Colossians 3 14 and above all of these he says as important as these two that I've touched on today are Paul gets to verse 14, he says, above all of those, put on love. Because love drives that. And we can try to reduce love to this romantic Valentine's Day nonsense and miss what life is all about. Love is that investment of self into the other person that takes them places they couldn't go. It elevates them to places they could never get to on their own. If I love my wife, that's how I treat her. Not just one day a year by throwing a card at her. Every day, making the investment. Every day, paying the price. Every day, I love you means I invest in you and elevate you. But we're so me first and competitive that we hear that. It goes, that can't be right because if I do that with her, she wins. Yes, she does. But God's picture of marriage is when she does that back with me, then I win. We both win. There's God's design of what love does in a relationship. But you know, this is not any different in a marriage relationship than it is with those people that you see on an everyday basis. Invest yourself in them. 
You may or may not get it back from them, but God honors you when you love people like he does. Russell Stover figured out a way to make money on a thoroughly divine action. But we dumb it down. Especially on Valentine's Day, we dumb it down to be in a card or chocolate or diamonds or something like that. So my challenge to you is, first of all, respond to the love that God has for you. John 3.16, the best picture of what divine love is. God so loved you and me that he gave his only son. There's the investment. Who died on the cross, we know that the gift of God, of Jesus Christ to us, ended in his death. Well, it didn't end there, but it had to go through there. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you don't know that life, you can. You can know it today. You don't have to walk out of here wondering what this love is all about. I would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he offers to you in life. If you don't know any of that stuff, then let's talk. And this invitation time is a good time to do that. I'll be down front. Aaron and Stephanie will be at the back if you want to go catch one of them. This is the time. Matter of fact, y'all go on so people know what you look like. Um, but this is a good time to respond to that love that God gives to us. If you don't know Christ, why would you walk out when that invitation is yours? Many of us already know Christ, but we've abandoned love long ago. Our marriages show that, and our relationships of our friends show that, and the way we treat people shows that. And Paul says, you got to get that straight. You're killing the cause of Christ if you reduce love to romanticism. So, Father, we ask that you take this time to change hearts, change lives, change me for your glory in Jesus' name.